0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Marxist Sociology Blog Podcast. It's been a while since our last episode, but we decided to give it another try, and I'd say it's good to be back. Our hope is to make this more of a regular occurrence, so stay tuned. I'm your host, Barry Eidlin, Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill University, and a commissioning editor at the Marxist Sociology blog. We're the official blog of the section on Marxist Sociology of the American Sociological Association and you can find us online at www.MarxistSociology.org. Today's episode is a bit different from previous episodes in that it is motivated more by current events than a current publication. Specifically, it's motivated by something very near and dear to my heart, namely labor law. Now, before you skip ahead, let me just make the case that if you care about power and inequality, if you care about workers' rights, if you care about movements for social change, then at some level you need to care about labor law and I think that the discussion you're about to hear does a good job of demonstrating this, so I hope that you'll stick with us. Okay, so we're talking about labor law, but we're not just talking about any labor law, we're talking about right-to-work laws. And the reason we're talking about right-to-work laws is that on March 24th of this year, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed legislation that repealed Michigan's right-to-work law which had been passed in 2012. It was the first time since 1965 that a right-to-work law was repealed and only the fifth time ever since these laws began getting enacted in the 1940s. But what are right-to-work laws? Despite their name, Right-to-work laws have nothing to do with guaranteeing any kind of right to employment. Rather, these laws allow workers in unionized workplaces to opt out of paying for the costs associated with negotiating and enforcing their union contracts. Now, that sounds pretty arcane, and at one level, it is. But right-to-work laws have been a flashpoint of social and political conflict in the United States for decades. Anti-union employers and politicians have spent much time and energy getting right-to-work laws passed, while unions and labor supporters have fought them tooth and nail. Just as right-to-work's passage in Michigan in 2012 was viewed as a big win for business and a crushing defeat for labor, So too was its recent repeal hailed as a major victory across much of US labor and the left, while business groups were left licking their wounds while sounding ominous warnings about the consequences. So why is there so much fuss about such an arcane law? Why and how do right-to-work laws matter? What do right-to-work laws actually do? This has been a focus of my own research but to help me grapple with these questions and more, I'm joined by two scholars who know more about right-to-work laws than I do. First, Johnny LaTesta is an assistant professor of sociology at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. She's a political and cultural sociologist with interests in political parties, labor and social movements, public policy, and American politics. Her current book project, Right Word in the Rust Belt, conducts a comparative historical analysis of political contests over right-to-work laws in the industrial Midwest as a window into understanding the current crisis of representation in American democracy. That is, the tendency of partisan lawmakers to pursue policy programs that do not align with the interests and preferences of voting publics. She's been following the developments in Michigan closely and we'll be able to offer some insights into what's going on there. I'm also joined by Tom Van Hoovelin. He's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota. He's interested in the long run causes and consequences of changes in economic inequality. His work has appeared in several journals, including the American Journal of Sociology, Social Forces, ILR Review, and the European Sociological Review. In particular, his piece in the American Journal of Sociology takes a deep dive into the complex and contradictory scholarship surrounding the effects of right-to-work laws, which I highly recommend. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. And now, without further ado, on to the interview. Johnny LaTessa and Tom van Heuvelen, welcome to the Marxist Sociology Blog podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Barry.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, Barry. Excited to be here.
0: Great. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So we're speaking here today. It's April 5th, 2023, and this is the day after uh, we saw some big progressive wins in uh, the state of Wisconsin and the city of Chicago. Um, Both of potentially could lead to important wins for labor, but it's too early to tell um what's going to happen there. But we are speaking less than two weeks after Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a bill that repeals a 2012 law that made Michigan what's called a right-to-work state. And this is kind of a big deal, or it isn't kind of. It is a big deal. It attracted national media attention, and I would say rightly so. It was really the only, the first time since 1965 that a right-to-work law has been repealed in the United States, and only the fifth time ever since these laws began getting enacted in the late 1930s and 1940s. And it was correctly understood as a big win for labor, um, but I think there's a big question as to how and why it's a big win. So before we get into the details of this, uh Tom, I just wanted you to start out and briefly summarize for us first just what are right-to-work laws and number two, what are they supposed to
1: do? Yeah, sure thing. So right-to-work laws were sort of one provision of sort of a broader set of pushbacks against uh, sort of the major sort of labor victories in sort of the nineteen thirties, like you know through through the Wagner Act, you know unions won a bunch of rights like the right to organize, the right to strike um and just about as soon as labor started to get these large national victories, um interest groups, business groups you know um began to mobilize and organize and push back and right to work laws. Um, target something called union security agreements, basically requirements for um, um, employees to provide some kind of material contribution to unions as a condition of employment, whether that be union membership itself or in more, you know, sort of recent decades, um, some kind of like financial contribution. And, you know, right to work laws are. So like fair
0: share fees or agency fees, I think. Exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, um, right-to-work laws are sort of local policies that are passed, so they're passed at the state level. Um, currently, I think that more than half of the U.S. states have right-to-work laws. Half the U.S. population is under some kind of right-to-work law, yeah. um, and some folks describe all public sector workers as under a de facto right-to-work status after the 2018 uh, uh, Janus Supreme Court case. And... Right to work laws have motivated activism, sort of political fights, the mobilization of a lot of human and financial resources on the ground for, you know, nearly a century now. And so if you just look at people fighting over these laws, you know, you, you would think that they're a really big deal and should be very consequential. It's hard for a certain policy to maintain almost a century long fight. But then you turn to the social scientific literature. And, you know, there's not a lot of certainty about how these laws translate straightforwardly into particular outcomes. So there's some research that would suggest that union numbers decline after these laws are passed, and not dramatically, but modestly. Um, You know, there's some research from the late 1980s that shows that unions tend to have lower odds of sort of um successfully being sort of recognized and organizing in a workplace when right-to-work laws are passed, and, that, and then when they are successful, they mobilize and organize smaller workplaces. Mike Wallace and his team have shown in some recent sort of research that, you know, union membership tends to decline after right-to-work laws are passed. It's kind of what you would expect for laws that target union power. Mm-hmm. Um You would think that and given...
0: maybe oh, yeah. if we could just interrupt uh, here... Um either you or Johnny could you talk a bit about why pro business groups settled on right to work as this pol- as this chosen policy right so why target union security what's the what what's you know There's there's all these different ways that you could attack labor and that you, that that the groups do attack labor unions but why right to work specifically what's the logic behind that
2: I think it's a great question, Barry, and probably one that varies historically and from place to place. I mean, it's worthwhile noting, and I think we'll get into this probably a little later, that no or very few proponents of right to work today would say that it's about weakening unions, right? They have other frames for justifying these laws. But I think it's, it's useful that Tom alluded to this surge in union organizing and union wins um in the 1930s and early 1940s and right to work um by my understanding is was really a sort of policy response to that um and why right to work in particular i mean there's a couple of of reasons for that but one is sort of a matter of like what tools are available to uh, local business communities and local business leaders um, and their political allies in the states. And so the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 am- amended the Wagner Act in order to give states um, the discretion on how to um, restrict or not certain provisions of union security agreements, including um the right of a union and an employer to agree to union security contracts. So compared to things like the right to association or just the basic right of forming a union, this this sort of restriction on union security agreements is one space in which states and indeed local governments have true jurisdiction over labor law compared to the federal government, um And so I think that was really seen as an opportunity to um put limits in the place of union organizations, especially at a time when the federal government, by and large, right, was falling in line with this sort of liberal labor coalition and was making advances that, by American standards were quite, you know, pro-labor. Did you want to add anything, Tom? Yeah. Well,
1: I think – That's, I think I agree with all that. Maybe just two other points to add on is that one, it addresses basic concepts of what a worker is in the United States, right? It really address, it really helps to define an American worker as isolated fragmented and atomized, right? They are a single single individual unit with single individual unit freedoms, right? And that's, I think, easier to manage if you're an employer. My sense or my my read of studies of um, right to work, you know, there's this great quote that Alex Hertel-Fernandez has from the um, State Policy Network. And, you know, they were, and somebody from that group argued that, you know, they were pushing right to work laws at the state level as sort of one, in one way to, um, defang and defund their political opponents to more business friendly social environments. So, you know, it's the idea that it, it's that these laws are potentially effective at fragmenting workers, reducing a variety of resources that are available to unions. And that allows for a new, for market logics to more um to sort of um better thrive um in in the states with their past.
0: and i think it's also important to mention i mean that it's no accident that these emerge primarily in the jim crow south of the 1930s and 40s um there's uh the famous uh role of the the um vance muse right um in in the the, the christian businessmen's association leader uh in in sort of um, you know, tying these right to work laws to sort of, uh, an effort to fight, uh, fight, you know, to, to, to retain segregation in the workplace by pitting, you know, the, the sort of like building on what you were saying, Tom, about the anti-solidaristic elements of right to work to sort of, um, you know, give, uh, workers the option to, opt out of these unions that are sort of forcing white workers into the same unions as, as their, uh, black, uh, black union siblings.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Barry. And the, um, Rayuther library at Wayne state university has some fascinating documents tracing like, um, Right. I was able to pull up some old advertising materials from the National Right to Work Committee, right? And there is very much a racial undertone, um, to this messaging, right? And it's about sort of being a free worker, um, and not being sort of chained, if you will, right? To the union movement. And I think. Um, from what I found, this messaging was targeted at both black and white workers. Right. So, again, really trying to prevent um interracial solidarity in the American labor movement.
0: And I guess I, the, the other thing I'll add is that uh, I guess from my own research is that it sort of is uh, about why Right to Work specifically, I think, is that it provides this it's a consequence of the sort of rights-based framework that the Wagner Act establishes, right, so that the Wagner Act establishes the federal right to join a union. And so right to work provides this federal right to not join a union. And so this concern, you know, the the, the Taft-Hartley Act is really shot through with all these, this framework of trying to write the scales, essentially, the idea that the Wagner Act sort of, through the labor-capital relationship out of whack, and that this is an effort to to balance the scale, so to speak, and so you balance the right to join a union with the right to not join a union. Um, anyway, but so so that's a bit about the, the the kind of history and what these laws actually do, um, and we'll get into some of the complexities um, surrounding right-to-work laws and, and specifically about their effect in a minute. But before we do that, I, I do want to sort of jump forward to the present and talk a bit about the context surrounding uh, the Michigan repeal. So, um, Johnny, you've done a bit of digging into this, and could you just briefly lay out for us how and why the repeal in Michigan came to pass and, and why now?
2: Yeah, totally. So, you know, it's it's probably useful to just specify like what what was actually repealed and what did it do. Right. So back in 2012, the Michigan legislature, which at the time was controlled by Republicans and also had a Republican governor. So they passed actually two statutes, two right to work statutes, one governing private sector employees. And one governing public sector employees. So this most recent repeal that just passed repeals both of those, um, statutes, though it'll have different impacts for private and public employees, um, which we can, it has to do with the recent, um, Janus ruling in the Supreme Court. But in any case, yes, so these two laws were repealed and why now? Um, well, the short answer to that, um, is because just now for the first time in 40 years democrats uh regained control of all branches of the Michigan government or I should say all lawmaking branches of the Michigan government so they gained control they re- retained control of uh the governorship so Gretchen Whitmer was reelected governor in 2022 um and then they were able to secure slim majorities in both the state house and the state Senate. And sort of like, why is this a priority for Democrats? Um, You know, I don't have a solid, solid answer for why that's the case for Democrats now. But um, I do have a few observations, right? So repealing right to work um, was a key priority for Democrats um, and labor unions in Michigan even before the legislation was formally adopted right and this has been a key talking point in democratic campaigns in the state i mean since the law was enacted um right but we never they never had um the governing majorities to do it unilaterally um so now we have the governing majorities or democrats have the governing majorities um what do we make of that i mean I think it's interesting to note that the champions of Right to Work repeal uh, this time around were some of the same Democrats leading the charge against Right to Work when it was first um introduced in 2012. So Gretchen Whitmer, the current governor, was the Democratic minority leader in the state Senate at the time. Um You also have more newly elected Democrats who not only have union roots, but who were around – um, who were around at the time of Right to Work's introduction in Michigan and sort of recall that fight. Um, uh, and that includes, uh, the repeal bill sponsor, uh, Regina Weiss. Um, so you write, so you have this sort of like legacy connecting the Democratic Party of the early 2010s with this new majority that was just elected. Um, the second point that I'd make is that the appeal like the initial right-to-work statutes, was passed strictly along party lines. Not a single Republican voted for the repeal, at least not to my knowledge. And in their opposition to repeal, Republicans reiterated their key arguments from 2012, saying things like Michigan needs to keep its right-to-work law in order to keep the state attractive to employers, And if right to work were to be repealed, um, you know, the state is likely to you to lose business and investment opportunities. And the third observation I'd make is that um, Democrats had just barely enough votes to pass the repeal. Right. So they have only a one seat majority in both chambers.
0: So they needed so, absolute party discipline to make this happen.
2: Exactly. You need absolute party discipline. And so to me, this all suggests that the tides are not necessarily turning in Labor's favor, right? Although Labor is certainly celebrating this particular legislative outcome, right? This repeal does not represent a profound shift in partisan thinking on right to work, right? The parties are largely taking the same positions and using the same talking points they did in 2012. So I think it remains to be seen what will become of this Democratic majority into the future. Right. And to me, I think the real interesting question is, can Democrats build this into a durable majority with a clear mandate for policy change? Um, And I think, you know, time will tell.
0: So, so that's good to sort of have a sense of 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 what's going on in the here and now, but um, I think it would be good also to just back up and segue into your actual research, which is about how Michigan, which is of course the in many ways the cradle of the modern u s labor movement, came to become a right to work state, um uh, which is sort of a, a, an interesting puzzle in and of itself. So could you lay out that story for us?
2: Yeah, and I'll I'll do my best to try uh try to be brief. So yes, you're right. Like I agree um that it is very puzzling that an industrial midwestern state, particularly the state of Michigan, would adopt a right to work law, and this becomes even more puzzling when we actually look into the legislative history of right-to-work laws in Michigan, and in fact, the fact that um, when right-to-work laws were first sort of spreading across the United States in the 1940s and 1950s, they were sidelined not by Democrats, but by Republican leadership. Right? And so um, in my book, I try to illustrate how for decades, right to work laws were not only opposed by Democrats, but were really understood as a political pariah for Republicans. So the key question then is like, how do we get to this Republican Party in Michigan and in other industrial Midwestern states where you have this sort of Republican Party that um for a long time was sort of in alignment with the Liberal Labor Coalition did things like invite- the George
0: Robney Republicans.
2: So. Exactly, right? They did things like they invited leaders of labor unions and labor federations to their, um, conventions, right? Like labor had a seat at the table. So how do we get from that to um, come 2010, a Republican party that is very explicitly anti-labor and which is taking up, um, right to work laws and other restrictive labor reforms, you know, as a key banner of their platform. And I trace that shift, um, to strategic maneuvers by mid 20th century business associations and political professionals who aimed at consolidating small and private business in particular as a formidable political force within Midwestern state Republican parties. right And so in particular, I trace the formation of new organizational forms such as statewide PAC networks, advocacy organizations and conservative think tanks, alongside this embracing of new political strategies, that really broke with the political status quo of the time, right? So these are doing things like making primary endorsements um, or business associations in particular, making primary um, endorsements and sort of what sociologists have called astroturf organizing, right? And these things seem commonplace today, but they really were sort of, state of the art and a shift from the norm um, at the time that they were introduced from the late 1970s through the 1980s. And so I argue that what this did is it really changes the political terrain uh, in Michigan, right from a terrain where small and private business are really sort of on the art outskirts of the Republican Party and they're trying to curry favor with both parties. To, um, a situation where they're really holding this interstitial position, like in, um, Mm -hmm. connecting all these important networks and subfields in state politics, including political fundraising, policy research, opinion polling, and law. And so all of that creates a condition that come 2010, once you see this big wave, you know, Republican election, Small and private business in Michigan is uniquely situated to sort of marshal these networks and resources to make right-to-work happen, even though the initiative met with strong opposition from the legislature, um, including, like, explicit opposition from then um Senate majority leader, right? And so it's sort of like now that business has this position, they're able to do all of these things to basically discipline the caucus into voting, yes.
0: So now we've got a bit of the history and the politics surrounding right to work in Michigan specifically, but I think it's important to, to dig into this bigger question, which we've started to dig into of how and why right to work actually matters. I mean, we've talked about the history of how these laws come into being and there's obviously a big political context of sort of the backlash to the Wagner Act and stuff like that. Um, and, there's certainly an, an intention as to how they're supposed to work, uh, and uh, but but there's a lot of contention as to how they actually work in in practice, right? And I know I I mean I I've done my own deep dive into the scholarship on the effects of right to work, but uh, Tom, I brought you here because you've actually gone a step further than me, and you've actually gone and replicated a lot of these studies on the effects of right to work for your 2020 article in the American Journal of Sociology. So. Uh, I couldn't think of a better person than you to bring on to summarize for us what the existing scholarship on the effects of right to work has actually shown. Yeah.
1: You're too kind, Barry. (laughs) So, you know, I think that the starting point to think about what we would expect right to work laws to do would be, you know, what do unions do for things like earnings and inequality? And I would argue that across the social sciences, there's a surprising consensus of the importance of unions for economic well-being, especially for folks at the middle and the lower end of the earnings distribution. Unions tend to raise wages, especially for folks middle-income and lower-income. Unions tend to raise wages for folks who are not in unions, but in sort of places where unions are powerful, whether that's unionized industries, states, cities, occupations. Unions compress the earnings distribution, both for union members and for non-union members. Some recent studies by economists have argued that the combination of minimum wage change and union decline are responsible for two-thirds of the wage inequality that we've seen since the 1980s. Some work that I've done with Zach Parolin shows that for um, a cohort of baby boomer men that you can track over the entirety of their careers, a unionized career is worth about a million extra dollars in your pocket. So unions are really important for reducing inequality and raising wages. So then we have this policy that is pretty straightforwardly targeted at lowering union power. And, you know, folks seem to suggest that it, it, it does. You would think that would have an effect on how unions affect earnings and And it's so weirdly mixed in terms of what people find. Um, some folks find that um, it does nothing. Some folks find that right-to-work laws sort of unleash economic dynamism and increase wages and reduce poverty. Some folks find that um, right-to-work laws um, lower earnings and, you know, increase inequality. My paper, I find that right-to-work laws increase inequality sometimes and in some places if they're able to be passed in times and places where labor is particularly strong. So in terms of economic outcomes, it's a bit of a weird puzzle. Um there's not a lot of consensus for laws that are targeted at such an important sort of social organization for sort of the structure of the American labor market.
0: So that yeah, this is this was what was puzzling to me too, right when I did this deep dive into these, into, into this research is that, you know, I came in sort of with right to work being sort of public enemy number one on the list of likely suspects for U S union decline. And then you actually dig into the literature and, and you see all these mixed results, not just for inequality, but for, even for, for, for union decline, but then how do we square this? Right. So how, you know, If we're getting such mixed results, why do people why do business groups spend so much time trying to enact these and and Republicans spend so much time sort of championing these laws if they if they get such mixed results?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think I think you can also turn to sort of other maybe broader or some might argue squishier, some might argue more institutional, some might argue more symbolic mechanisms by which right to work matters, you know. So there's a great study in 2011 by Rao and colleagues that showed that Walmarts tended to relocate sort of new openings of, of Walmart stores on right to work sides of um, state county pairs because um, there would be less sort of antagonistic pushback against their business practices. There's a recent study by a few economists, Nick Bloom and colleagues, that showed that after um, right-to-work laws were passed in the upper Midwest, that managers started to have more sort of aggressive, discretionary uh, managerial approaches, right? It was easier to... you know, you weren't as constrained by union power if, if you're a manager, you know. Um, others show that, you know, manufacturing plants tend to seek out right to work states um, for reduced labor costs or, you know, for more business friendly um, social contexts. And then there's the political side of these laws. Folks like um, um Tel Fernandez, Feigenbaum have conducted really interesting studies of you know states that pass right to work laws, comparing them to nearby states, and you know union influence on local politics really quickly craters after these laws are passed. Union contributions decline, um, left success in the political process declines. We know that unions are sort of one of the few sort of social organizations that. Works really hard to mobilize low propensity voters, um, and put pressure on policymakers to enact and enforce egalitarian policies. And it seems like right to work might be pretty good at squashing or minimizing sort of that pressure. So, you know, Mm -hmm. direct immediate within person sort of changes in earnings or inequality changes. So it's tricky to, um, it's tricky to narrowly find an effect like that. But if you think of laws and policies as targeting more like symbolic, um as, as sort of providing sort of some symbolism that a state is open for business, allowing for a more business-friendly environment, then then you can see why there might be so much energy around getting these laws passed.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to see that, I mean, your, your research is focused primarily on inequality, but, you know, I mean, I think if you look at it, even on membership, right, that the expectation with right to work is that you're supposed to get these legions of free riders, right? Who just, you know, if, if they can get something for nothing, that workers are just gonna, you know, quit the union and still get the benefits. Um, but the, 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 the effects really seem to be fairly marginal. I mean, there is a decline, you know, but you know, I was just looking at the Michigan numbers and, you know, if we just look at the private sector, which is, All this affects, as Johnny said, you know, because well, we've got this Janus decision that 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 retains sort of right to work provisions throughout the public sector. We just look at the at the private sector. You know, we're 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 looking at maybe thirty nine thousand free riders, so workers who are covered by a collective bargaining agreement but are not union members. Thirty nine thousand in the entire state, where you've got close to four million private sector workers. Right, like that can't be what's driving. Either union decline or, um, you know, what, what's getting everybody so exercised, right? So Johnny, how does this, what, what Tom's telling you? So he's got this idea that, that, that the the s- symbolic role of right to work in sort of driving these broader trends. How does that line up with your own analysis on the ground of efforts to pass right to work in Michigan, Indiana, and then the failed attempt in Ohio?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd say that it I mean it totally aligns. So thinking about right to work in in those specific cases, I mean, um you know it's it's really difficult as a sociologist, let alone a um historical sociologist to sort of attribute intent, right, to historical actors. But there is like I think enough preponderance of evidence that at least for some of these right to work proponents that there was indeed a belief that Right to work would sort of shift the political balance to make a more, I mean, they would describe it as a more equal playing field between business and labor, right? And so, like, a key example of this is right to work was, um, you know, a long time goal of the, of, um, conservatives and in particular conservative business leaders um, in Michigan and it was sort of described as like this holy grail is what one of my respondents described it as right this thing that sort of a lot some folks wanted but felt like it was never going to be achievable and part of the reason it was it it held this sort of status symbolic status is that you know there was a belief that that Something like right to work was really necessary to loosen labor sway over the Democratic party, right, and the ability to elect democratic majorities right and and you and you see language that sort of hints at this sort of in language from sort of new business associations and advocacy groups that are popping up in Michigan in the early 2000s, right? Sometimes it's coded language, it's often not explicit unless it's obviously to a a audience of allies, right? But it's sort of about this language of leveling the playing field. And then you combine with that, I think a a real belief that right to work is this sort of economic panacea, particularly for ailing post-industrial economies, right? So actually for a different project, I did some digging into state business climate rankings, and those do indeed take into account the presence of a right-to-work law. And that is a very concise, compelling, synoptic device by which lawmakers sort of assess their state's economy and how they're doing. And so in the case of Indiana and Michigan, you had sort of policy people and, um, business site selection professionals telling these lawmakers, well, you know, the reason you're getting passed up is because you don't have a right to work law. Like I have clients who won't locate in a state, um, because of a right to work law. So even, um, if in those instances the, the information might be anecdotal, it sort of adds to this generalized belief that like, If we want to be a state that's open to business and see job growth and investment, we've got to have a right-to-work law, particularly when there's neighboring states that have them.
0: So I think what I'm hearing from both of you is that at some level we're talking about right-to-work having this sort of symbolic power, right, that it's not the direct effects of right-to-work. So even if the specific provisions of right-to-work laws might not be directly affecting the labor market and unions by creating more free riders that then creates more financial burden for unions that then you know defunds them and, and 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 encourages people to to quit we're still seeing this process where the law as a whole sort of sends these signals that have real political and economic effects does that sort of make sense given what 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 your research has found I mean, I
2: think so. And I mean, I do wonder, I would be curious to hear Tom's thought on this because I do like wonder if some of this like difficulty in measuring an effect is about, you know, like what's that about, right? What's might be driving that difficulty, right? Like I do think that, that this law laws in general, and this law in particular carry symbolic value. And, you know, we've been talking about the sort of business perspective, but symbolic
0: value that really matters.
2: Right, symbolic value that really matters. It matters because it drives political action. It drives people's conception of the possible. Right. So some symbolic in like sort of diffuse. Right. Symbolic, not not to say like oh, it doesn't matter. Right. Matters a lot. And the, and we've been talking about the business perspective, but I think it matters on the labor side as well. Right. So I mean, I haven't done interviews with workers on the ground in Michigan. Right. In the lead up to this decision. Right. But like I my mind goes to this question of like, what is at stake in this for them? What does right to work symbolize for them? And that, you know, that is informed by sort of anecdotal observations. Right. I now live in North Carolina, which is a right to work state. And, you know, and the lowest it's,
0: union density so, state in the United States. So,
2: is it really? Yes. Oh, excellent. Um, trade places
0: with trade places with South Carolina every now and then.
1: There's a lot okay. of competition for that uh for that place that's impressive,
2: yeah. <laughs> yes exactly right, to be commended no i um yeah, I mean so it's it's anecdotal evidence, right, but like when you talk to I found that when I talk to workers right and they have grievances or they have issues, and you know if a question of a strike comes up or a question of talking to a union comes up. Sometimes the response will be, well no, we can't do that because we're a right to work state, right? And in, and in some cases they're correct. They may not have a legally protected right to strike in the case of um, public employees or a right to enter into collective bargaining agreements. Also the case for public employees here in North Carolina. But it's not because of a right to work law, and so I, I do think that right to work sends this message that right, the law, and the sort of policy environment are not going to have your back if you want to sort of advocate for your rights as a worker.
0: Yeah, so it symbolizes this that have nothing. So, so it sort of shapes people's expectations of what's possible, even though like. Being a right to work state has nothing to do with your ability to strike, your ability to join a union, your ability to bargain collectively has has no effect on that, but it does affect people's sense of what they what what their scope of action is
2: precisely
1: yeah, I agree with all that. I think that that's really nicely said. i mean sort of johnny your uh your your anecdotal evidence you know that reminds me of that that definition by Bruce Western back in the late nineties of institutions, which are the congealed outcomes of previous power struggles right and it seems like folks believe that about right to work right that the law was passed and that has resolved the question about whether unions are a viable option in north carolina right and i mean hey we're we're three sociologists right so uh symbolism matters you know it's important it helps establish sort of boundaries of what is possible and what is desirable and what you can reasonably expect to get out of life, you know, that is developed, you know, through, um through symbolism, through institutions, through norms, through sort of patterns. And it's, you know, I think that, yeah, right to work probably matters insofar as it contributes to that.
0: But it's very difficult to find those in a regression table.
1: It, it challenges sort of the way that people, um, sort of the state of the art of how you can, find a causally identified effect, right? Like it would be great if laws worked like taking a Tylenol and you had a stable set of people who took the Tylenol or the placebo and you could watch immediately afterwards, right? But laws that target broad issues of business friendly climates, it, it just, it's a lot trickier, right? It's a lot more diffuse yeah. and it, it requires a lot more creativity to find or to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that actually points to sort of a bigger the bigger issue, right? Which which points at why this is such a hard effect to to measure, which is that right to work laws invariably happen in this broader historical political context, right? That you can't talk about, you can't just isolate, which makes the independent effect of right to work so hard to measure, right? So, what often is happening is that you've got and I think this is I think what your paper does so well, um Tom is so sure, like you know when this stuff matters like when when you know we when when there's a lot at stake, you know when you've got a period of existing union decline, then the right to work law sort of comes in and sort of ratifies that higher process of of decline, which is the result of these power struggles, right. And so, and it might sort of have these amplifying effects later through its symbolic power, but it sort of is this signaling event that is related to that inextricable set of, of political and historical factors that are surrounding it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's probably a lot of like variation of how these laws sort of contribute depending on the broader national climate, sort of the local constellation of policies. Um, sort of broader trends, right? Like it probably matters whether these laws are passed to create union decline, to halt unions from organizing, or sort of just like a after-the-fact triumph of, hey, we did it, we solved the labor question, right? Yeah. Like you can think about a, a social situation or like a, a hypothetical situation where unions have been outlawed by penalty of death Um, and that law comes first, so there's zero union members in a state, and then right-to-work laws passed afterwards, like, no, that second one is just sort of a reaffirming what happened before, right? And there are no union members to be affected by it.
0: So maybe just to start wrapping things up and bringing it back to the present, I'd like to hear your takes on what you expect to be the effects of right-to-work repeal in Michigan and, you know, whether this is going to, I mean, I think, Johnny, you already said that you don't think it signals a, a shift in the sort of certainly in terms of the partisan alignment surrounding right to work. But if we think about the symbolic role of passing right to work in increasing inequality and in reducing union membership and all the other sort of anti union, anti worker effects, how much can this repeal potentially reverse these kinds of things?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, my sense is a lot of that depends on what unions and worker movements do going forward, right? Like, I think, you know, one scenario is that this emboldens workers and emboldens union organizations. So, yes, there have been, like, there are free riders, right, in Michigan that are now, you know, once the contracts are updated and the law goes into um, implementation and all these things, right, there will be some gains. They might not be, like, huge gains. There will be gains in resources, But then I think the question is sort of like, A, how are those resources then deployed into building a sort of conscious and robust and diverse Movement And B, like regardless of those particular or specific uh, financial resources that unions may get access to, how does the labor movement see itself and organize itself going forward? So to the extent that workers see this repeal as a signal of their ability to really have a voice in the political process, to impact political outcomes, and to sort of organize and bargain for for better working conditions and wages, then I think it's super promising. But I think some of that falls on union leadership to really seize this moment as a moment of bubbling labor power.
1: So, I mean, to begin, I would just say that if you if you spent the last decade just following me around, listening to my predictions of the future and betting on the exact opposite happening, you would be unimaginably wealthy, right? <laughs> so, so, so take this with a grain of salt. But you know, it's just, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little unsure and I tend to, um, be a little bit pessimistic. You know, I really, you know, I think that there are real differences between getting the toothpaste out of the tube and getting it back in you know like I do wonder if if it is more of a symbolic work that kind of operates to dislodge the idea of labor from politics and create a broader sense of sort of anti-labor labor market institutions ideas practices the the repeal might not be just As equally consequential as getting the law in place, so that's that tends to be my prediction. But it's just, it's I'm really unsure. Like you said, we've only last seen this when Indiana repealed back in the mid 1960s. It's kind of new uncharted territory, so we'll see.
0: But it is clear. I mean, the 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 interesting thing, you know, if, if we think about sort of the implementation of these right to work laws, particularly in the current time period. Um, you know, because I think keeping in mind your, your, your research, Tom, we need to be very situational in our analysis of the past of right to work laws. But I think it's pretty clear that in the more recent era, starting maybe with Oklahoma, um, uh, in 2010. Wait, and, I thought Oklahoma was 2001. Oh, 2000, 2001. Sorry. Yeah. And I, I misplaced the one. So 2001, starting there, maybe and going forward that these are clearly laws where you've got this sort of process of union decline and the law sort of signals this prior process of, of, of union decline. But the, it doesn't seem that this repeal is that in reverse, right? Like we're not seeing Necessarily a upsurge of labor. I mean, we've got the, we've got the political realignment in the legislature, but we don't have a revival of labor on the ground in Michigan. And then this is signaled by the repeal. I mean, I will say that it, it is sort of maybe symbolically important and potentially substantively important. That the repeal happened almost exactly at the same time that you have this leadership transition in the United Auto Workers, right? Which is the most yeah. important, uh, the most important union in Michigan, uh, which has sort of long been a, a, a key player in, in the political realm and also in sort of setting the pace economically in, 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 in many Michigan labor markets and probably the entire state. And so that the fact that you have This repeal coming on the heels of the election of this new reform leadership that is anti-concessions and much more militant in the UAW, sort of maybe pairs well together to provide a bit of of hope. Anyway, on that note. Oh, go ahead. I
2: I would just note, too, right? Like, in addition to repealing right to work, the Democrats reinstated prevailing wage, which once again, once implemented will have an immediate effect on wages um for workers covered by that law so like i guess i guess i'm feeling like cautiously optimistic like let's see what happens and right and like this is happening in a moment too where like labor work i should say workers right because it's not labor with a capital l are doing really interesting things like across the united states right we have the organizing drives at amazon and Starbucks. You have jobs with justice is really fascinating to me. So you have all of these campaigns that are like experimenting with all of these different approaches to doing what it is that unions do, right? In some cases, they're going the sort of traditional collective bargaining route. In other cases, they're sort of really, um, working to build workers as like a broader social movement, right? And so, yeah, I guess that's just to say, like, I think right to work is like a important, but one tick among others in this sort of broader story
0: johnny latesta and tom and hivlin uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak today
1: this is a treat thanks barry
2: yeah it was fun thanks barry thanks for organizing
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the marxist sociology blog podcast i'm your host barry eidlin Thanks to the Section on Marxist Sociology of the American Sociological Association for sponsoring both the blog and this podcast, and thanks to our Editor-in-Chief, Gretchen Purser. Thanks also to Sarah Hurd for invaluable technical assistance. For more accessible summaries of current Marxist sociological research, check us out online at www.marxistsociology.org. Until next time, stay inquisitive and never underestimate the power of the organized working class.